back to another edition of the Michael Deacon Program. For those first-time listeners out there, thank you for finding this. We do hope you stick around. Stick around like your keyboard. Now tonight we look back in time when things weren't so bad. A time when we weren't fighting amongst each other. A much more simpler time. Is there evidence that the September 11th attacks were timed to coincide with brief periods of superior and newly available aviation guidance? Tonight we will find out. Joining us this evening is Aiden Monahan. Aiden holds a bachelor's degree in electronic engineering and is an open records researcher of the 9-11 attacks. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for allowing us into your hearts and into your minds. Here we are again on a night like this. Hello to you out there, Sarah Dillon. And, of course, greetings, boys and girls. The wait is over. Now I've returned between your ears and between, well, you get the point. I hope you're doing well out there. Lots to discuss. And I know you're ready. Remember, you too can get involved. That number is 760-332-8724. Now let's get down to brass tacks and bring in our guest. Aiden, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you today? I can't complain, my friend. Thanks for having me. No problem. No problem. I'm glad you're here. And what's going on out there in Las Vegas? Let's start with the basics here. Well, it's getting a little warmer and things are starting to open up uh, activity-wise, business-wise. Uh, some of these uh, lockdowns that they've had in place are starting to ease up a little bit. They're allowing certain businesses to begin resumption of uh, services and so on. Very nice. And what are your thoughts and opinions on the latest uh, pandemic right now, Aiden? Uh, unparalleled in my experience, I've never quite seen anything like it. Uh, it's unusual, you know, I suppose being a skeptic of uh, most official stories, I've had certain questions about everything that is happening and perhaps some doubts, but uh, some of those questions may uh, require time to be uh, fully answered. Perhaps, you know, time will tell. We'll see. No problem. And I agree with you wholeheartedly. And of course, you are the author of the book Declassifying 9-11. Correct. And, of course, I have not read the whole book, Aiden. I'm sorry. I feel, no worries. Uh, I, I don't you. have an advertising budget. Oh, sorry. I don't have an advertising budget, so it's not as well known as it might otherwise be. Definitely. And I'm glad you found the show. Um, you were listening to the show with Dan Hanley, correct? Yes. I came across it on YouTube. Really? Yes. What were your thoughts and opinions on that banter? It was very interesting. It, it was a... It was a Topic of interest to me, great interest uh, for a number of years. Uh, I, I drafted some peer-reviewed publications at a 9/11 skeptics uh, organization website. Um, you know, I, I just I dived into, dove into many details regarding the subject in general, and so I was quite well versed on many finer points of the topic uh, up until a number of years ago. Haven't given it as much thought in recent years, but here we are today. So. I decided to take some time earlier and try to review as many facts as I could. Very to be nice. Help to you and your audience. Yeah, no problem. And what was it about 9-11 that made you dig deeper? I, in the early 2000s, there were several uh, videos that were out there. And I came across one and 
they raised some really good questions. And it was at that point that I realized something is uh, not right here. And I just continued to explore and was in it for about 10 straight years if there's nothing but continuous research. And prior to that time, I had been an official subscriber to the official stories of uh, you know, the so-called war on terror, 9-11, etc. And I did a complete 180 after doing some research. A complete 180? What happened? Did you believe the official narrative at first, Aiden? I did. And I later came to realize that, you know, the official story is often propaganda, regardless of the, the topic. And uh, it took me a while to realize this, but I came around and um, I, I realized that, you know, only a small fraction of what took place was ever addressed in, in, in larger uh, media outlets and so on and publications. Right. The terror attacks on September 11th, 2001, were the deadliest attacks on U.S. soil since the Pearl Harbor bombing. But of course, that launched the U.S. into World War II. For those that are young out there, which we surprisingly do have very young listeners, uh, Aiden, I, I do forget. Yeah, I, this this may all be new to a lot of people who are perhaps younger than myself. And uh, it, it still seems like yesterday in many respects, but for others, you know, younger than myself or yourself, perhaps it might seem like ancient history and something they can't relate to. Yeah, definitely. Now I feel old. And of course, uh, Aiden, do you recall where you were at 8.46 a.m. on that Tuesday? Yeah, I was uh, chatting online at the time and somebody jumped into the conversation and said, turn on the TV. Things are happening in New York. And of course I did and you know, couldn't believe my eyes. And you know, we're, we're all in a state of shock for uh, the, the days and weeks afterward. You know, we weren't the same after everything that happened. Wait a minute. You were, you were online. I was, yeah. There was some chat form, I think maybe a Yahoo chat. They were, they were kind of like, this is all before Skype and social media. I see. Interesting. Okay. I like that. So you were like in some um, form. Um, so you probably visited maybe an AOL chat room a uh, time or two then. Yeah, it was in the morning. I uh, just got home from working overnight and didn't have the TV on. And of course, I turned it on right away and saw what I saw. I think uh, Bryant Gumble was on CBS, uh, panicked. I'm thinking to myself, settle down, Brian. What's, you know, <laughs> calm down. Right. Here. And then, of course, I saw the pictures and then realized what he was talking about. Yes. And in regards to 9 11, what are some of the uh, theories that you just don't accept? For instance, like the hologram theory. Well, there are some more ex exotic theories sure. I don't subscribe to. Uh, Early on, the, the building destructions became a source of uh, controversy and evidence began to accumulate that maybe the official story wasn't, in fact, what took place. And later, uh, evidence for explosives was reportedly found in dust from the site and so on. And eventually, I, I realized that the destructions of the buildings were not as officially reported and thought to myself, well, if that's the case, then the the official story regarding the flights may also be false. Right. That was a, an aspect I began to dive into just for my own interest and satisfaction, wanting to resolve that aspect of the attacks. I'm glad you said that. We have audio of some of the phone calls, by the way, of that morning. I did want to jump into that, but going back to the World Trade Center, experts said no building like it. A modern steel-reinforced high-rise had ever collapsed 
because of an uncontrolled fire. Yes, and you know that that was the first. That was on that on that single day. There were three buildings in an unprecedented fashion that all came down the way they did, and uh, you know, quite remarkable. I agree. And seeing that collapse, I knew something was up. Even um, Building Seven, even more yeah, this year. Of course, most most had not ever seen the video until years later of it coming down the way it did, and. That's when people became, you know, the public became more suspicious. And yeah, Building Seven, most people don't even take that for consideration. As wild as that may seem to some of the uh, listeners out there, uh, my listeners are actually rather, rather smartened up, uh, Aiden. I'm, I'm always very surprised at how uh, sharp they are, especially before I do a show and after a show. Uh, sometimes I'll talk to them. And they are a great source of information. I, I really don't need to explain too much to them when I do the show. They are, well, to be honest with you, a lot of them are even smarter than I am uh, by far. They should be hosting the show. Yeah, well, I guess with the technology we have today, you know, the powers that be, so to speak, I think have lost control somewhat of the narrative and people have access to more alternative information than they used to. And therefore, you know, the, the public is probably smarter than it used to be. I think so. I think a lot of people are waking up uh, to a lot of things. People have been smartened up over the years to a lot of this. Yes, self-included. Yeah. I just remember at the time, you bring up a 9-11 in the early 2000s, and you were like a, a whack job. True. Isn't it yeah. amazing, though, Aiden? Over, over time, those who really praised President Bush at the time, those who really backed him, uh, fast forward a couple of years, now they all hate him. It's true. It's, it's gratifying to see uh, you know, the, the, the people on his side of the aisle see him perhaps for what he really was. And uh, it's gratifying to see that, you know, so many have apparently woken up, as you say. Right. It's a beautiful thing. It is. And I just hope it continues. And, uh, you know, there's a battle for the uh, public consciousness, it seems, underway on a daily basis in uh, public opinion. And what do you make of the no planes theory, uh, Aiden? I'm curious. I I'm skeptical of it. Okay. I, I, I I'm not sure how it came to be. I, you know, perhaps it, it's disinfo to disrupt a uh, more plausible conversation about more plausible alternatives. I I'm, I'm I've I've never really considered it or accepted it. I hear you. It's kind of uh, hard to imagine. Yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, if there was a covert operation, it doesn't require, in my opinion, such means. I, I think there are more, much more plausible outcomes and plausible means, you know, for carrying out what may have been a covert op, so to speak, a black op, as some refer to them as. Well, there's no doubt about it. There were several exercises going on. Coincidentally, yeah, it, oh. it's sort of, uh, you know, interesting timing, you know, as to, as to why or what role they may have played or what purpose they may have served. But, uh, you know, that it was information like that that just continued to raise my eyebrows as time went by. You know, the the, uh, the so-called coincidences, too, so many of them. Too many coincidences. Too many. Just like uh, COVID-19. Yes, you know, it, it seems that these things uh, are always war-gamed by powerful interests before they eventually uh, unfold. Yeah, that alone should make you question uh, everything, really. It's hard for a lot of Americans out there listening to this. Many people that you and I know still have a hard time grasping 
this sort of um this bitter pill, in other words, Aiden. Yeah, uh, but I, I think you just we just you know people like ourselves who are interested in the truth just have to continue to uh, uh, put forward the truth, and I think people, most being reasonable, when provided with enough information, you know, come around to the proper way of thinking about such events. You know, I, I, they they come out of their states of denial and concede that you know maybe things are not as they seem or as they are reported as they are on TV or in, in the media. I'm glad you said that the first report on television firmly indicated that bin Laden and Al-Qaeda were responsible. And that occurred uh, about 11.30 a.m., if I recall. Oh, sure. Very early on, they Isn't were that telling funny? us who, who, yeah, they were telling us who did what and what we had to do. And, you know, so many suspect figures were, you know, suggesting things right away that, you know, seem to require some forethought and time, you know, as, you know, such as, you know, going into Iraq and alleging connections between what happened to, you know, interests in Iraq that we wanted to uh, push aside as we eventually did you know, by a war. And, uh, you know, my, I absorbed it and accepted it, unfortunately, but eventually, you know, came around to other ways of thinking once I became uh, privy to more information that was not being dispensed, you know, by a normal channels. And with the information you obtained throughout the years with the documents, what has been the most vital piece of information in your opinion, Eden? As for information I've obtained on my own, um, yes, sir. It's hard to say, to boil it down to one. There's been like several that, that come to mind. For example, I made a FOIA request for the data download for the flight 77 black box that, you know, was within the aircraft that hit the Pentagon allegedly. And for example, the uh, timestamp contained within the data file in the properties uh, precedes the recovery of the device by four hours. Basically, the data download took place four hours before the box was even found. And I, I discovered that after the NTSB had uh, mailed to me the compact disk containing the data download file going into the properties. It showed the time that it was created, and it predates the actual recovery of the black box itself by four hours. That's one that comes to mind. I also made a FOIA request of the Bureau of Transportation Statistics seeking information on flights for the 9-11 planes prior to September 11, 2001, and found out that for the year preceding the day of 9-11 itself, there, were no flight there was no flight activity for any of these airplanes. So what were they doing during the year prior, the whole year prior to 9-11? I never found out. And by requesting this sort of information, do you think you end up on some sort of like watch list, Aiden? I have heard that citizens can make FOIA requests of themselves with the FBI uh, to find out you know, if the FBI does have information on them that may be gathered during investigations they're not aware of. I've never actually made such a request of myself. Perhaps someday I'll get around to it. Uh, I'm sure they have things about me that they know. Having uh, pestered so many federal agencies over the years for 9-11 information, having taken them to court several times, uh, I'm sure some people know who I am. You took them to court several times. Yes. Under the Freedom of Information Act, if agencies don't turn over what you request, you are entitled to uh, seek uh, judicial remedies administrative remedies uh, with the courts, the federal courts. And uh, I, once upon a time, asked for a bunch of records regarding the 9-11 flights, 
such as the airline records for the airplanes, the, the evidence collection records for the aircraft, and so on. And they refused and eventually conceded in court that they had no such records at all for, for what I was requesting, which is extraordinary. Right. But then, uh, you know, not long after that, you know, the media made FOIA requests of the Department of Defense for records substantiating the death of Osama bin Laden. And similarly, the Department of Defense told the court and the plaintiffs that they had no such records, that no such records existed. And once they make that declaration, they're basically off the hook, you know, the under the administrative uh, laws, you know, they're not required to say, say anything else. If they don't have things, they don't have things. And all they have to do is allege that. And that's good enough for the court. Interesting. Yes. That's got to be frustrating for you. It was. But then on the other hand, it was an extraordinary concession in my view. Uh, you know, you know, consumers of the information, you know, their suspicions were immediately raised, you know, upon finding you know, this out. You know, there were people following my activity online. You know, for a number of years, I was making a new, numerous FOIA requests for different agencies for different records. And, you know, it, it, it certainly didn't help their cause. Yeah, it that's certainly gonna, didn't. Yeah, that's going to corroborate their official version of events. Right. I was just going to quickly add that probably draw some red flags seeing your name, Aiden, uh, to these folks. Certainly, yes. So I, I actually considered it a victory to have them concede that they didn't have any such records. I mean, it's uh, it, it boggles the mind. Of of course, you're supposed to have this information. The the FBI grabbed up everything documentation wise, wise, you know, related to any. Uh, peripheral matter regarding you know the aircraft or the alleged actors and so on that's what the fbi does you know that probably better than anything else is, is grab all information and put it under lock and key and beyond the prying eyes of uh, anyone else but themselves yeah we still haven't gotten many answers from what actually happened that morning sure there's still I some to- uh there's still some blank spots there in my opinion oh many even 20 years later uh uh, you know, I, I, I appealed the the uh, regional court uh, denial for my request, took, took it to the Ninth Circuit of Court of Appeals, and uh, two-to-one decision, still lost. But one of the judges saw it my way at least, so, you know, a small victory in any event. Right. And going back to Bin Laden, do you believe he wasn't shot and killed by our special ops? Do you think that was a, a lie? I do. Uh, the alleged uh, assassin for bin Laden was interviewed on 60 Minutes, for example, not long after the event. Right. And by Scott Pelley, I believe the correspondent's name was. And he asked the, the uh, soldier point blank, did you recognize him? And he said no. And then they just moved on. It's like that was a bombshell. And they just moved on to another topic. It's little things like that that, uh, you know, That's make really- me skeptical. That's really hard for me to believe that he was just taken out uh, in a raid. Right. And uh, they uh, they alleged that some videos of him were found within the property. And yet the ones they played on TV never really showed his face. Right. They saw the, sub- the subject from the side and from the back. And they allege it's been Laden watching stories about himself on the news. <laughs> and you never really saw his face. It's all, it's all allegation, basically. And uh, as I said, the media made requests for more specific corroborating information regarding this assassination. And the Department of Defense said that no such records existed like DNA or photographs. 
And, you know, they basically just killed him and tossed his body over the side of a military vessel into the ocean. And that was the end of it. That was it. Open and shut case, right? Essentially. Jeez. And they just moved on. <laughs> yeah, it just, it doesn't make sense. Like Bin Laden's family being evacuated that morning. Oh, sure. Yeah, the, the skies were cleared. Airlines were all brought down. However, you know, numerous flights were allowed to depart the U.S. with uh, powerful Saudi figures and Bin Laden family figures. And yeah, it's like, where, where are you going? Can we talk to you? Like, apparently not. You know, what information did they have? You know, and of course, this is the suspicious connections between the family of Bin Laden and the Bush family, all the business interactions that had gone on during the years prior to 9-11. Uh, they were they were they were quite close. I mean, speaking of coincidences, there you go. Too many, way too many. But, but yes, um, the body into the ocean. It's so silly to believe that. I, again, it's such. I have such a hard time believing that. It's, it's it's almost cartoonish. It is. That that sounds made up. It does. But I guess um, our government really wants us to believe that. Yeah. As to why, you know, at that time they decided to. Uh, you know, allege that, you know, he was assassinated, you know, what political end that information served. I, I don't know. Insane, really. And by the way, I feel like it's time to play some of these uh, audio clips for you of the phone calls. Certainly. This is the air traffic controllers, by the way, and some dispatch personnel. Let's, um, let's roll that for those who haven't heard it. And of course, some people say, these are not real tapes that they were pre-recorded. That's what some people um, believe, uh, Aiden. I'm not sure where you stand with that, but let's um, play these tapes here. Certainly. The cockpit is not answering their phone. Our number one is in staff, and our five is in staff. Hey, I'm going to call from Washington. I am in a situation where the American learned a possible hijack. What's going on, Betty? The crap is erratic again. Very erratic. Eddie, talk to me. Eddie, are you there? I don't really like that effect they put on that video, though. Yeah, it sounded like uh, sonar. Yeah, sonar ping there. Yeah, that's <laughs> really annoying. But yes, you, you get the point Betty? here. Betty. Betty. The flight attendant, Betty Young. That's right. American 11. What? The 737? The what? Who are you talking to? Oh, God. Oh, my God. United 175, New York. We have some problems over here right now. We might have a hijack over here, two of them. Fuel So what do you make of that so far? Do you think those are real or do you think those are falsified? I've seen uh, evidence of uh, good studies done on the technological capabilities of cellular service circa 2001. And uh, many uh, have compellingly claimed that such calls were not possible. Right. I've heard that. Uh, I, I think it's noteworthy. Um, I did, I believe, make FOIA requests for... Uh, billing statements that may have been collected by the FBI regarding these phone calls to corroborate that they, in fact, took place. Uh, but I never was able to obtain them. They uh, they stopped me in court. And uh, certainly, you know, that, that could have settled uh, some public doubts about their official story. You think it would be in their interest to release such information 
in order to uh, convince the public of the, the uh, validity of their claims, but they uh, refuse to release anything, almost. And it's been 20 years now. Yep, and the anniversary is coming up again. Yep. Can you believe it? Wow. Time flies by, right? Time has flown, yeah. It really has. The, the 20 years seems like five or ten. It doesn't seem that long ago, my friend. It's pretty crazy. Yes, time flies. And again, it's embarrassing that we haven't been told the truth about a, a lot of these uh, events that went on. That should uh, anger a lot of people out there. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's unfortunate that more don't try to pursue things, especially those with the capability. I'm surprised that people with the uh, capability to litigate uh, don't do more themselves. If I had more skill in the area, I would try myself, but. Uh, you know, the services for attorneys can be very expensive. Oh, yes. Fortunately, fortunately, I was able to raise money to obtain some services, but they were too late. I tried to do some of these, uh, some of this litigation on my own and made some uh, errors along the way that were enough to cause my lawsuits to fail. Uh, later on, eventually, I was able to obtain legal services, but they weren't unable to do the self-inflicted damage I incurred during the administrative process. There are so many stumbling blocks uh, with respect to litigation in the federal courts and the uh, administrative uh, laws regarding governing the FOIA and so on. Amazing. And of course, caller, you are on the air. What's going on? Hey, Michael. How are you doing? Is this Captain Dan Henley? How are you doing? Hello, Abe. Hi, Dan. Good to hear you. I was listening to the program. Good to hear you, too. Uh, Michael, I'm getting a background uh, recording while I'm talking. It's pretty distracting. Uh, it's, you're getting a what? What was that? Now we're now you're cutting off here. I'm I'm still here. You're still here. Can are you better now? Can you hear us? Yeah, but I, I'm I'm getting a delayed feedback on a previous recording. Oh, that's not good. Let me call you. Let me call you back. Yeah, go ahead. Go I'll ahead. Call you right. Okay, go ahead. Oh, I'm glad he called in. Yes. Hopefully we can wind up in, in an interesting conversation. I'd like to hear his input as a former professional. Yeah, definitely. We could we could bring Dan in here, no doubt. Always nice to uh, bring in Captain Dan Hanley, no doubt. Hopefully we could uh, bring him on here. Maybe we could bring him in uh, on Skype. I guess he'll try to return the call. Yeah, I think he'll he'll call back. We we heard him just fine though. But you got to keep in mind the guys in uh, Pakistan. Yeah, what are we talking about here? 8,000 miles, perhaps? I know. Of course there's going to be a delay, right? Yeah, I think so. Bouncing off a few satellites and underground uh, fiber optics, underwater fiber optics, perhaps? Yeah, so, you know, I'm not surprised. Oh, there he is. He's calling back. Let's answer that call. Uh, can you hear us now, Dan? Uh-oh. And now we don't hear him. Mm. Well, that's not good. Well... We don't even hear you, Dan, if, if you're out there. I'm not sure what he was trying, but yes, um, we might have lost Dan here. We can't hear him. Well, it's that happens. It's Just a it's conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Hey, who knows? These days, nothing surprises me. I know, right? Uh, Dan, if you could hear us, uh, don't worry. We will uh, try to contact you uh, through Skype here. Yeah, I don't think the uh, phone is going to work with him out there in uh, Pakistan, uh, Aiden. He sounded great last week. Yeah. I was surprised to learn he was calling from that far away. Interesting that, um, you know, we can't even get him on here, but we heard those phone calls pretty clearly on that plane. Of course, certainly. 
Yeah, you know, as I said, I I don't know a great deal about the technology specifics, but I've heard enough claims that it just did not support uh, the types of calls that were allegedly made. And I've been on a number of flights myself with my own phones and have tried to connect. And as soon as you are beyond a couple of hundred feet off the ground, your service is uh, is gone. And so to have made such calls from 35,000 feet while moving at 500 miles per hour for extended periods, uh, you know, it, it's, um, it seems implausible. Remarkable. Uh, Dan, is that you? Yes, it is, Michael. You sound um, sort of better there. Can you hear me, Michael? Yes, sir. We hear you. Okay. Loud. Well, what I'm, what I'm getting is late uh, recording what it's saying, uh, but I can talk through it. I can, I can listen to what it's uh, saying. You're fading in and out on us, uh, Dan. Pardon? I said you were fading in and out, but now we hear you okay. Um, Aiden, you can hear okay. him now too, right? Yeah, I do. I do hear the fading in and out. Um, I can understand some and not other parts. No worries. Uh, Dan, can you hear us clearly now? I can hear you, but I still have the delayed recording in the back. Oh, yeah. You, you got you to gotta turn that off then. Yeah. Yeah. Turn off your, your listening device, as they say. Uh, well, I'm- I think we hear. I think it's better now. Yes, it is. We've done it. Uh, Aiden, we, we've done it. Can you believe it? Well done. Yeah, right. Perfect, perfect. So, Aiden, you were listening to me and uh, Captain Dan Hanley talk about the hijackers and how the maneuverability uh, this, is... This isn't working, Michael. Let me try one more time to call you back. <laughs> I'm sorry. No worries. We'll jump on Skype, uh, Dan. Uh, that that would probably be better. I, I, I'm, on, I'm on Skype. Let me, let me try that. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, the the whole phone call thing is is not a tangible uh, way of uh, doing it here, especially if you're in Pakistan, uh, Aiden. I can imagine. Yeah, <laughs> you're you're going, you're covering a lot of ground and going through a lot of uh, infrastructure to make these connections. Oh yes, let me. Well, yeah, he is on uh, Skype now. Very nice. Now we we will get to talk to him in a much better uh, sense here, uh, Aiden. One moment here, Aiden. Hold, hold on for me. Sure. Let's uh, bring him in here. Yeah, so now we are trying to get a hold of um, Captain Dan Hanley, and now it says he's unavailable, probably because he was trying to call us. Yes, you got to love live listening here, boys and girls. You never know what's going to happen. Sometimes we might even get uh, someone else in, and that's what we just did right now. Uh, Captain Dan Hanley, what's going on? Michael, how are you doing? I'm still getting the feedback on on my headset. Well, that should clear up in a few moments here, uh, Dan. That's, That's Skype. You know how that goes. After a few moments, we will be clear. And I hear you now. Dan, are you with us? Aiden, we, mm. might, we might have lost him. I thought we had him. He sounded good, and it seems we lost him. I know. He was selling great. I think it might be his headset. Yeah, he's uh, messing with his uh, headset there, boys and girls. But yes, uh, let, let's continue uh, to discuss uh, furthermore of what went on. With these alleged hijackers on uh, Dan and uh, Aiden, if, if Dan, if, if Dan is still there, Aiden, go ahead. What is your take on these alleged hijackers, especially with them being on film? And some folks say, well, they couldn't have done it. They weren't even there. What's your take, uh, Aiden? Well, the one piece of video that comes to mind is Atta and an accomplice going through um, security checkpoints. But that was actually at a regional small airport that was connecting to the eventual uh, 
uh, flight that flew out of Boston. So what you actually saw was not the hijackers boarding the flight that they eventually hijacked, but it was actually a smaller connecting commuter flight at an airport in a neighboring state. I forgot which state it was. Right. And I, to my knowledge, I don't think there is any video or photographic evidence of any of these uh, alleged hijackers boarding their aircraft. I think there may be one snippet of uh, footage at the Dulles International of uh, one of them passing through a um, security checkpoint, but not actually any photographic or video evidence of them actually boarding the flights, to my knowledge. Right. And again, the official narrative is that these gentlemen went to this flight school and they weren't exactly the best of students and especially having to have flown these big commercial uh, airlines here. It's it's hard to imagine that they were able to do it so successfully. And again, uh, obviously, I'm not a pilot. And did we lose Aiden now? We might have lost Aiden now, boys and girls. I'm not exactly sure how the hell that happened, but now we've lost Aiden. Let's bring him back in. Uh, Aiden, I'm sorry about that. I'm not sure what happened. We might have been uh, knocked off there uh, for a moment there, Aiden. I'm sorry about that. Uh, no now we're back. Yeah, well, now we're back. I, I don't know what happened there. Yes. The chat room is saying uh, Mercury Retrograde. That's uh, by Nish. I don't exactly um, believe too much into those sort of things, but that's what uh, she said. Interesting. Yes. Uh, before we got cut off there, I was just stating how the official narrative wants us to believe that these uh, gentlemen were able to successfully do this on this huge uh, airline. And now we have a Dan Hanley back uh, live and direct from uh, Pakistan. What's going on? Oh, now he's gone. <laughs> My goodness, uh, Aiden, I'm sorry about that. Oh, no worries. Technology at work. Yeah, I'm not sure what's going on with Dan, but he can get in here. And yes, for those in the chat room, I do apologize. I'm sure the audio's fine on your end, but uh, for me and Aiden here trying to get Dan, it's it's kind of impossible at the moment. What time of day or evening is it in Pakistan? Oof. I think it's... Whoa. Uh, Dan, uh, are you with us now? Yeah, I'm here. Uh, Dan, what time is it out there in Pakistan? It's uh, 6.25 a.m. 6.25 a.m., boys and girls. Yes. I'm still getting the audio in the background, uh, Michael, so uh, just bear with me. I try to listen to what you're saying. Are you sure? Have you, have you turned off the, the, the YouTube video? If you haven't, you probably should, uh, Dan. Okay, let me, let, let me turn that off. Yeah, there let you go. Let me turn that off. Perfect. Okay, that appears to be working. Fantastic. Finally. Sorry about the delay, folks. No worries. No worries. Yeah, I'm glad you're here with us and you're in Pakistan. 6 a.m. out there. Thank you so much for joining us here for this improv conversation. And um, Dan, I'm sure you could fill in some of the blanks we have here. We were just discussing how impossible it would have been for untrained uh, pilots, even with uh, such little experience they had. I still consider them untrained. Right. Well... Aiden, I don't know if you visited the website and see what we put out there, but we're strictly focusing on the pilot's lack of experience and the availability of the uninterruptible autopilot on 9-11. Uh, but 
I started flying in 1968, over 50 years ago, and I flew civilian airplanes. I got my private commercial instrument and multi-engine rating. And I know they didn't have all those ratings. And I know, based on my experience back there, I can unequivocally state that they could not possibly have flown those aircraft. I flew the uh, Boeing 757-767. And if you go to our website at 911pilots.org, uh, there's a menu at the top. If you just hover over it, you'll get a drop-down menu. And one of the first things we show is the differences between the two cockpits of the airplane. And the stark differences uh, shows that the story is absurd because uh, the uh, Cessna aircraft have such a simple cockpit, cockpit compared to all the switches and knobs, especially the flight management computers on the aircraft that are the primary source of navigating the airplanes. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, and then if you go to the hijackers page and look at the lack of experience of the pilots and the degree of complexity that would be required for them to maneuver the aircraft, in particular, Hani Hanjur, the uh, American Flight 77 that struck the Pentagon, his lack of experience all by itself uh, demonstrates that it couldn't have been done. If you go to the homepage on the website, uh, the very first video you come to, there's a group called Pilots for 9-11 Truth. I don't know if you're both familiar with them, but they've done extensive research. And what they did was uh, get a young pilot in a simulator, and they replicated the uh, Pentagon flight maneuver uh, for him. And every time he tried it, he crashed. And at the end of the video, a friend of mine, Rusty Amer, who has about 45,000 hours and 20 different airplanes, the most experienced pilot I, I know, uh, he says to this young guy, you couldn't do it, and I couldn't do it either. There is a, a pilot, he's uh, dead now, he was a whistleblower, uh, named Philip Marshall, and I was told that on his 22nd attempt in the simulator, he was, in fact, able to hit the Pentagon. But we're led to believe that Hani Hanjur, with his lack of experience and lack of knowledge of the aircraft, was able to hit the Naval Intelligence Center exactly at ground level without skidding the surface on his first try. That story is absurd. I agree with you. It's very hard to imagine that he was able to do that. He must have, and I and I joked about this last time, but I was saying he must have been the Michael Jordan of um, pilots. Exactly, exactly. And I want to point something out. Uh, everybody knows the 9-11 Commission was not a criminal investigation, but uh, it should be noted that not one single pilot was permitted to testify before the 9-11 Commission as to the absurdity of this notion that those pilots could have flown the airplane because they would have laughed when they would be asked the question. Now, I, I'm only going on, on my opinion based on my past experience, but what uh, 911pilots.org is doing is collecting affidavits from highly skilled pilots from around the world, and uh, we're going to present them to the U.S. attorney in New York with, in hopes that he'll initiate a grand jury investigation. And based on the affidavits that have come in so far, all pilots agree with me that not only could these hijackers not perform the maneuvers, but they could not have done them themselves. So. Yeah, uh, I think really the reason that 99.999% of the global population fell for the official story is that they're not pilots and they cannot conceive of this absurd notion that they flew the aircraft. They, they don't know the maneuvers required. They don't know the complexity of the airplane. They can't make a, they cannot, uh, discern that, uh, these pilots, uh, could not have flown those aircraft. 
Hey, Aiden, have you done research on the pilots or uh, the aircraft differences? Yeah, in fact, uh, referring to the Pentagon attack, uh, the GPS service that's now available to the commercial aviation industry was activated one year before 9-11 by Defense Secretary Richard Cohen during the Clinton administration. And as late as the late 1990s, Stanford University, who were uh, developing the GPS service that's now available, noted, in fact, that under autopilot control and GPS, the kind of circular descending trajectory of American Airlines Flight 77 is, in fact, supported by the GPS uh, services now available and the commercial aviation packages that were apparently on board the aircraft uh, circa 2001. Uh, avionics providers such as Honeywell and Rockwell Collins uh, had announced uh, installations of these systems into the Boeing 757-767 aircraft as late as 1998, I believe. Right. As a matter of fact, on our website, if you go to the remote control page uh, and you scroll down, we're going to billboard the audio recording right now. Uh, if you click on the name Wayne Anderson on there, it's a 45-minute interview conducted by Rob Balsamo, the co-founder of uh, Pilots for 9-11 Truth of Wayne, who was an avionics technician. And that that's a smoking gun. He worked on this system uh, in 1996 and 90, 1997. And for people who aren't familiar with the uninterruptible autopilot, we contend that there were no alleged Muslim hijackers at the control of the aircraft, that the aircraft were uh, electronically hijacked uh, by remote control, wherein they take uh, an external controller takes control, total control of the aircraft's autopilot and flight management computers and uh, can guide the aircraft wherever they want. And once the system is engaged, uh, the pilots can't disconnect it. They're along for the ride. So uh, if you listen to Wayne's uh, discussion, they were in a hangar and they were doing a, a bench test on the autopilot, an electronic test on the autopilot. And there was a man in maintenance control with the laptop and he asked them to engage the autopilot. They were on walkie talkies, which they did. And he took control of the aircraft. Now there's four different ways of disconnecting an autopilot on the Boeing 757-767. One is to turn the switch off that you turned it on with. The other is there's a little button on the yoke or the steering wheel of the aircraft. You disengage it that way. A third way is to apply a 70 pound force on the yoke. And the fourth way is to disconnect uh, I mean, pull the circuit breakers on, on the system. And when they tried all four of those methods of disconnecting it, they couldn't do it. It was backdoored somehow. It was hardwired huh. into the system. Wow. That's so interesting. It's a, it's a very interesting interview. Very, very. very right. And by the way, did we ever find out who was controlling these planes? Who was behind that? We don't know that. By the way, but I can guarantee uh -huh. I can guarantee it wasn't a skinny man with a laptop and a cell phone in a cave somewhere in the mountainous regions of Afghanistan doing it. I'm going to ask you about that in a second here, but in the YouTube chat room, the cover here for Aiden is uh, his um the banner work I have here. That's a picture of uh, Rudy Giuliani with what looks like a remote control and he's controlling the plane going into the world trade center along with uh, Dick Cheney and uh, George Bush there with a <laughs> gas uh, canister of, you know, pouring gasoline into the uh, world trade center. That might get Are taken you down. Uh, that might get removed from uh, YouTube after this uh, goes up. 
Who knows? Yeah. So catch your watch live, I, people. Go ahead, Aiden. Sure, if I may. I came across a video of United 175. There's numerous uh, videos of it. One in particular shows the final 13 seconds of flight for it. And of particular interest is the final eight seconds of flight. And at second one, you can see the plane entered the video frame with wings horizontal. When it reappears from behind the smoke, the aircraft is at a banked angle of 20 degrees. According to government reports, that it was traveling at 799 feet per second. And I estimated through calculations that it settled into this 20-degree angle of bank at about a mile and a half distant. And then three seconds before impact, it made a final 18 degrees of additional bank for a total of 38 degrees of bank at impact with the building. And for it to have... I, well, I use trigonometric calculations having certain uh, given information such as uh, distance and rate of speed and so on. And with that info, you can draw other conclusions through calculations. And I found that um, basically how unlikely it would be to be able from a mile and a half distance to line up as required to hit the building as we saw, because I calculated that the final twist three seconds before impact only added an additional 19 degrees of movement laterally to the left. And without that, the plane still would have hit the building. And when traveling at 799 feet per second, as it was, if you're a second too soon or too late executing that 20 degree angle of bank, you necessarily miss the building by 799 feet. Exactly. If he hadn't started that turn at precisely that time with that degree of bank, they would have missed him by that much. So uh, we contend that an experienced pilot would have difficulty performing that maneuver at that speed and that close end of the target. So, and the and also stopping. there was an eleven degree, uh, pardon, right. an eleven mile per hour uh, crosswind that would have to be taken into account. And uh, you know the air, the air data computers, I believe they're referred to as with the flight management systems can certainly account for such uh, exactly. problems. People don't realize that the, uh, the uh, flight navigation system on today's modern uh, jet aircraft is derived from cruise missile technology. It's, it's downgraded, so it doesn't fall into enemy hands, but uh, it's extremely accurate. And this is displayed on an auto landing. When the visibility goes down below a certain level where you can't see more than 1,200 feet uh, down the runway, uh, pilots are required to auto land the aircraft. I mean, I've done plenty of them. And uh, you hook up the autopilot, you've got the flight management computer program, and you said you're along for the ride. And when that airplane touches down, it's exactly on center line and it tracks all the way down the center line of the runway using the localizer signal. And you actually have to disconnect the autopilot to regain control of your nose wheel steering to clear the runway. So it's extremely accurate and it could perform the maneuver you just described, Aiden. Right. And everything's so sensitive. All the controls, everything has to be adjusted before, before you even leave the ground. Uh, centrally, right. so these pilots hadn't been above 120 knots in their life. Yeah, and they're flying at these speeds in ex- excess of 500 knots. People don't realize the extreme control pressures flying that fast, that low in a big commercial jet aircraft. Uh, Aiden, you pr- if you listen to my last program, I didn't come up with this, but the, a good analogy would be for someone to get in a semi tractor trailer that have never driven it before, get it up to 500 miles per hour and try to drive it to a jiffy loop. That's exactly how <laughs> precise they would have had to have been. Yes, yes. 
And, uh, you know, the, the nav aids prior to GPS would not support the kind of flight paths that we observe. However, the GPS service is now in use, does support the kind of banked descending turns that we see with United 175, with American 77 into the Pentagon. And even Flight 11 was banked at a number of degrees when it hit uh, World Trade Center 1. Right, right. And you look at, for people that aren't familiar with the Pentagon maneuver, just west of the Pentagon, he was coming straight in toward the Pentagon, but just west of the Pentagon, he starts a descending, accelerating, 330-degree turn, uh, driving towards the Pentagon, and right before he hits, he guns it to maximum power and hits it at uh, over 500 miles per hour. Now, there is some, uh, an aerodynamic phenomenon known as ground effect, and it's experienced all the time when you there are these vortices that form on the bottom of the wing of the aircraft, and when you get down close to the ground, about one wingspan difference from the uh, surface of the earth, uh, it provides a cushioning effect, and you experience this sometimes on landing when you're floating down the runway and you got to push the nose over slightly to get the airplane on the runway. But Hani Hanjir would have had to uh, overcome the effects of ground effect that close to the ground. And the amazing thing is that he hit it precisely at ground level and hit the Naval Intelligence Center where the Office of Budget Analysts were conducting a, a review of the $2.3 trillion that was missing from the Pentagon budget that Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld announced was missing the day prior to 9-11. Now, if you're going to just crash an airplane into a building, why didn't they just drive it into anywhere on in the building? But it hit precisely at that point. So that raises eyebrows, too. In addition, uh, the Pentagon crashing has the alleged impact entry point and the exit point deeper into the building. And if one looks at photos of that exit hole, they find that it's perfectly circular and resembles uh, strongly the kinds of holes that are created by military wall breaching devices. And about 25 minutes or so after the impact of American 77, the alleged impact, you can over the television uh, broadcasts here, a tremendous explosion that was noted even by the show hosts, the programming hosts. No explanation was ever provided as to what that was. Some suspect it may have been a wall breaching device of the kind that I just explained. And perhaps it was part of a uh, crashing construction that was not authentic. Right. Well, I've heard all of it, that it was an airplane, that it was a missile, that there was explosives planted on inside the Pentagon, and that there was a flyover by an aircraft that dropped uh, an explosive device on the building. And I just want to reemphasize, because people try to get into an argument when we're discussing the information on 911pilots.org, we're ignoring all that. We're just focusing on the inexperience of the pilots uh, and their inability to have flown the airplane. I'm still on the whole fact that 15 of the 19 hijackers uh, failed to fill in the visa documents uh, properly in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. There's so, well, mu- wasn't, there's so much to it. It's just insane. Wasn't John Brennan in the embassy? I don't know whether it was in Dubai or Doha. And he was the one that actually approved the visa of the ones that did come in. I believe I heard something like that. Yeah. Yeah. There's just a lot to it. There, there's just so much that went on. It's hard to really uh, sort of uh, discern uh, through all the BS and lies throughout the years. Yes. 
troubling. Another aspect that raises uh, my suspicions is the apparent fact that of all NTSB reports, including the 9-11 flights and those prior to those, the 9-11 flights were the only ones, the NTSB reports for the flight data recorders, that did not have serial numbers attributed to each device. Really? I found that. Well, yeah, if you go online and look up all of the NTSB crash reports for 9-11 planes and those prior to that time, all of them, except for the 9-11 planes, have in- inventory control serial numbers attributed to each device. Wow. And those are required to facilitate the data downloads that apparently took place, allegedly. And one would think that that information was re- wanted as fast as possible by uh, law enforcement. So, therefore, if you have the serial numbers to facilitate the downloads, why don't you publish them in these reports? Right. Well, I'm working with uh, a guy I consider a walking, talking encyclopedia knowledge like you are, Aiden. And uh, he's, he's used the Freedom of Information Act to get a lot of information that I'm, I'm mentioning right now. And he's run up against the same thing. It takes him forever to get the information that he needs. Uh, but he does eventually get it, and he's got a lot. Uh, he remains anonymous. He lives at an undisclosed location. Uh, uh, but you were... You were talking early in the program, and I don't want to skip off topic here about maybe you are in the radar, uh, on the radar for government agencies. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned this last time, uh, Michael. Do you want me to go into what happened to me as far as being on the red list with uh, Homeland Security and Justice? Yeah, no problem. Go ahead and tell Aiden about that. Okay, Aiden. Uh, last May, uh, my wife and I were planning a trip back to uh, the state. And the very day I made plane reservations from uh, Islamabad through Doha to Atlanta, and that was in April now, the FBI calls my ex-wife in Washington and wants to know everything about the trip. So I called the FBI headquarters in Washington and said, hey, what's up? Why do you want to know about me? And they wouldn't tell me anything. So I said to my wife, something's going to happen when we get to Atlanta. I know it is. So sure enough. We go into the immigration hall, passport control, and she went over to the foreigner's line. I go on the U.S. line. And uh, I wasn't there but about two minutes, and a man and a woman escorted my wife over and identified themselves as an FBI agent, TSA agent, and asked me if I had time for questions. I said, sure. So and they were congenial. So they took us over to a desk that didn't have a line and told the immigration officer to stamp our passports, which he did. But when he looked in the computer at me, he turned, he was startled and he turned to the FBI agent and said, Hey, you know, this guy's red, don't you? And they go, yeah, yeah, we know. And I, I didn't ask him and I wish I would have. What does that mean? So they took us into a room and wanted to know, uh, where I was going to be in phone contact numbers, et cetera. And, uh, I thought that was the end of it. But a month later, we were departing the States and we'd just gone through security and we're walking down this crowded concourse. Now, how did they know what flight I was going to be on? How did I, they know I was going to be coming through security? But they were waiting for me. They came up behind us, another FBI agent, TSA agent, and asked me if I had time for questions. Well, we got there early, so I had plenty of time. So they took us in a room, closed the door. And the FBI agent said, uh, first, we want to thank you for your 10 years of military service in the Navy. And second, we want you to know we honor your First Amendment freedom of speech rights. Have you ever been threatened? And I said, no. Should I be concerned about it? He goes, are you sure? I said, no. And my wife laughed at him and said, he only posts on Facebook, which I did a lot at the time. I've been permanently banned from Facebook now for my posts. But uh, they knew everything about me. 
they knew they knew my whole background and everything. So I I'm in their radar sites, and I don't know why, because all I've been out here doing is uh, uh, preaching facts and uh, forming, stating my opinion about matters. But anybody that's on social media that doesn't think they're watching everything you do, they are. Good grief. Yeah. So I'm going to call tonight uh, a number of offices in Washington, uh, starting with transportation and the FAA, uh, Department of Justice, the FBI, the FBI Joint Terrorist Task Force, uh, the International Civil Aviation Organization, the National Transportation Safety Board, uh, and over at the Homeland Security. Uh, did I mention that Transportation Safety Administration, Security Administration? And what I'm going to inform them is the existence of the uninterruptible autopilot and ask them if they're aware of this system and state the fact that if no, this, this system still exists on board commercial jet aircraft and it is a potential, uh, hazard to aviation safety and national security because since it does exist, and since we allege that it was employed on 9-11, as well as the uh, accidents, Malaysia Air 370 over, out over the Indian Ocean and Malaysia Air 17 over the Ukraine, that uh, we're requesting that an investigation be initiated as to whether or not this system's on board the aircraft. And our, our proof, our, our allegations backed by some facts that it was, in fact, used on those three accidents. I'm going to record the phone conversations as well, so to protect myself. Certainly, the hardware, avionics, and uh, navate infrastructure is all in place to support this type of uh, uninterruptible autopilot capability. It's all there. Right, right. And somehow, communications is shut down on the airplane. And the aircraft transponder, which is the device used by air traffic control to identify the aircraft, is switched off, which we saw not only with the uh, 9-11 aircraft, but Malaysia Air 370 out over the Indian Ocean. All I've been on Malaysian TV twice talking about this. And on all five aircraft, the same thing occurred. The aircraft deviated wildly off course, communications was lost, and the transponder was shut down. So uh, it's all very fishy. Yeah, doing some research, I found that, uh, at least regarding 9-11, I think uh, two flights transponders were entirely turned off. Right. Uh, United 70, 175s remained on, but on a different uh, frequency or transponder different Transponder codes? Yeah, right. Transponder code, I should say. Forgive me. And then I think that also the case with 93, it was turning on and off. But I found that uh, military aircraft have the capability of jamming the transponder uh, broadcasts of commercial flights by occupying the same ICAO number that's attributed to each individual device and basically causing the secondary radar data generated by these transfers uh, transponders to disappear from ATC uh, yeah. screens. Now, you couple that with uh, multiple uh, military exercises being conducted that day up in New York that threw confusion into the factor in the fact that one of them was simulating a hijacked airplane crashing into a building. That's right. You understand, you understand the, uh, the uh, um, confusion that existed up there with air traffic control as to what was actually occurring, whether or not the hijackings were part of the simulated exercise or not. And additionally, uh, there was only one 9-11 aircraft that was in uh, 
potential conflict with other commercial flights that morning was the United 175. Its transponder happened to stay on. And as a result, it was able to, um, the TCAS, it was able to uh, notify the TCAS systems of these two other flights that there was a potential collision conflict right. with them. And it was actually, as a result of being on, able to allow these flights to get out of the way and right. thus facilitate right. the impact of 175 with World Trade Center 2. By the way, to add well, to further uh, context, what you were referring to, uh, Dan, um, the exercise happened, I believe, a month before 9-11. It right. was called, if I recall correctly off the top of my head, it was something like Fertile Rice. Which was the, I'm not familiar with the name of the exercise. It, it was, it was like, yeah, I'm remembering it was called Fertile Rice. Look it up, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that is the facts. And it was based yeah. around the scenario of Osama bin Laden, and it, it went deeper. Of course, this was uh, involving scenarios of what could and maybe would happen. It, right. it involved uh, bin Laden planning to attack Washington with a drone aircraft. So all these scenarios were going on, like you said. So again, all of this makes it even more fishy. All these exercises going on, uh, all the right. similarities to 9/11. If I may, Michael, speaking of coincidences, uh, official story proponents often say, "Well, you know, to destroy the World Trade Center buildings would have required a huge operation." Right. What most don't know is that in the year prior to 9/11, as a result of the sale of the Trade Center by the Port Authority to Silverstein Properties. A building property assessment was performed and found that within the elevator shafts of each building, there was corrosion that needed to be addressed via renovations. And these renovations for about a year were taking place within inside of each World Trade Center tower. Right, right. And what another researcher found was that the only work that had been completed in each tower just happened to be the same floors that were affected by the fires and impact of each aircraft. Yeah, yeah. What a coincidence. It's always and a then coincidence. There's talk, there's talk about uh, specific offices having been, like Cantor Fitzgerald, having been targeted uh, that day. And people say, how would that be possible? It's very simple. Those flight management computers I talked about, they've got a legs page on it, and I'll try to be uh, basic here when I describe it. Imagine you, you can put different points, navigation points, in this computer, and then across from it, you can put the altitude and airspeed at each point. And the airplane, just like a cruise missile, will fly exactly that course and altitude and airspeed all the way into whatever target they have. So to say they couldn't have possibly targeted these uh, insurance uh, firms in those buildings is incorrect. They could have. Yeah, the uh, GPS uh, constellation uh, supports a an accuracy of up to uh, one to three meters. And I also found that uh, through other research, in fact, um, the GPS constellation uh, generates uh, metadata on a daily basis that's downloaded and hosted at the U.S. Coast Guard website. And such files, they're called uh, almanac files, can be used by um, GPS planning software, for example. And I found that a few years ago, after downloading the almanac file for September 11 generated by the GPS constellation, that at the moments of each aircraft impact with WTC and the Pentagon, the most superior service throughout the day had been available right at the times of impact wow. of all three planes. It's as if yeah. somebody had planned this, perhaps, or at least it's consistent with the theory that had somebody planned this, they obviously, or at least, apparently I should say, 
considered taken into consideration rather the uh, availability of the most superior GPS servers available that day. Yeah. Rather than because because the satellites are in constant motion, the uh, the uh, superiority and inferiority of the service is changing, you know, hour to hour. But at each aircraft impact with the Trade Center and Pentagon, you find that the most superior service throughout that day is available at the moments of impact with each property. Wow. Your research goes much deeper than mine, Aiden. Uh, <laughs> I can only talk from a pilot's perspective based on experience. What I know couldn't have happened. And uh, there are other pilots out there saying the same thing. So what we intend to do is to get sufficient number of affidavits together where we can approach the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, if you're familiar with their work, and uh, have them work up a petition and submit it to uh, U.S. Attorney uh, uh, Jeffrey Berman in New York in hopes that they'll convene a grand jury investigation into this matter. Uh, and for those that aren't aware, the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry got together with the biggest whistleblowers, 9-11 whistleblowers in the world, and they brought forth evidence and uh, witness testimony uh, to the Lawyers Committee, and they compiled 57 evidence packages and did present them to the same U.S. attorney and compelled him to convene a grand jury investigation. While the Justice Department is dragging their feet, there's no indication of any movement on these in this investigation. So the Lawyers Committee is suing the Justice Department because they're not moving forward. So uh, I personally don't have a lot of faith and confidence in the U.S. Justice Department or the system itself, but we're going to press forward because this is a true test of the U.S. justice system, these cases coming forward. It's the biggest crime ever committed on U.S. soil and one that a criminal investigation has never been conducted. And why not? Because they came right out up front and said, no, we're not going to treat it that way. This is a terrorist attack. And uh, we're going to ship all the iron off to China without any forensic evidence being taken. And don't, uh, and don't forget, though, Dan, always remember Bin Laden's family is taken under FBI supervision to a secret assembly point only to leave the country by private plane, my friend. Don't forget that. Right. Right. When no other planes were operating. Good Lord. Yeah. It's, as I was referring to coincidences before, another one that comes to mind is the contractor supervising the renovations of the World Trade Center pre-9-11 was a company called Turner Construction. And the CEO at that time was a man named Tom Leppert, who eventually became mayor of Dallas, Texas, and was a close friend of George W. Bush, was uh, mm. honored by the White House during his administration for some title that escapes me at this time. And what I also find is that Turner Construction create or built rather the headquarters of the Naval Sea Systems Command a division of the U.S. Navy in the late 90s, and other researchers found that the nanothermitic types of materials that were found in the dust, the only reliable source for these circa 2001 was, of course, the Naval Sea Systems Command that I just referred to. Yeah. yeah and for people that aren't familiar with uh, the nanothermitic material, uh, I'll just mention that Steel melts, I mean, jet fuel burns at a temperature of 1,500 degrees and steel melts at a temperature of 2,750. And yet, uh, before the uh, buildings were coming down, molten iron was seen pouring out of the building like lava. And firemen 
walked around in this molten iron in the basement for weeks, if not months after the event. Now, where did that molten iron come from? Well, this nanothermitting material that uh, Aiden is talking about burns at a temperature in excess of 4,000 degrees. And a number of, uh, I believe, Stephen Jones and uh, uh, a 42-year retired chemistry professor from the University of Copenhagen were able to gather dust samples from the debris field of the three buildings that came down that day, and they discovered this nanothermitic material and that's part of the evidence packages being presented to the grand jury because Niels Herod did a, a peer-reviewed article on his findings that has yet to gone, on, gone contested over a period of uh, 10 years. Now, I talked to him on the phone one time, and he told me he's not going to step foot in the United States. Wow. And I said, what if, what if you're subpoenaed, Neil? He goes, well, that might be a different story. But uh, his... His findings were based on the scientific method are in, and are incontrovertible. Controvertible. Uh, no one's contested them. It stands uh, on scientific evidence that that was nanothermite in the debris field. By the way, going, tagging on to what um, Aiden was saying, yeah, the Turner Construction Company, they, they definitely had their hand in several other demolitions, of course, and they participated their in... First, mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Uh, yeah, no, the okay. first uh, demolition on record was the Seattle Kingdom. That's right. One right. before 9-11. They were contracted to perform the pre-9-11 renovations, and they were also contracted to perform the post-9-11 World Trade Center site cleanup. That's so they right. were all over this. And I tried yeah. to obtain records for the kind of work they were doing pre-9-11 at the WTC site. And I was told by three different agencies that all of those records were destroyed on 9-11 because they were stored on property. So there's no documentation whatsoever of who was doing what at that site pre-9-11. And you can't forget that Marvin Bush, George Bush's uh, brother, was a principal on the company of the, within the company that oversaw security on the World Trade Center building. Stratus, I can't remember. Yes. Stratosec, that's it. Yeah, I couldn't remember the name of the company, but uh, there's a lot of weird little things that went on. A lot of strange coincidences. Lots of people attached to each other, uh, too closely to, uh, attached to each other. Uh, familiar faces and names pop up out of nowhere. The whole fact right. of a new Pearl Harbor, which we talked about, Dan. Right. Look at all the players right. in that group. Right. Should raise an Neo, eyebrow. Neocon Zionist. Right. Go ahead, uh, Aiden. Sorry. Yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt. That's okay. Going back to the nano or the, the, the nanothermite, um, uh, these thermitic reactions also generate what is known as aluminum oxide smoke or dust. And what you find uh, before the collapse of Trade Center 2 is this type of smoke or dust emanating from the bottom of the building. Ah, uh, the white smoke. Yes, you, you can actually see it rising up from the ground. Right, right. And then about a minute later, the building falls. Well, uh, 118 firemen uh, provided testimony to the lawyers' committee who claimed both prior to building collapse or explosions going off inside the building. And as the building came down, there was a boom, 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 all the way down explosion. So those are eyewitness testimony uh, from these firemen. Yes, and numerous, uh, numerous. Oh, yes, it's pretty, pretty wild to look back in time, um, in hindsight, of course, and seeing how so much happened, and yet we still have no answers. I mean, everyone can right. agree with that by now. 
I've spent years on social media with listening to people argue back and forth on whose theory is right, and I would say to them, what good does us arguing back and forth other than enlightening one another? What good does it do? There's no legal action being taken. Where are you going to take your information if you're so sure you're correct? You're going to file an FBI complaint? Uh, that's why it's so important this lawyer's committee case before a grand jury goes forward because without that, uh, it's dead within the U.S. legal system. Right. And of course, before you jumped on here with us, we were listening to some of the um, audio, by the way, Dan. I'm not sure if you were listening. I to heard that. it. Yeah, yeah I, I heard, heard that. We, we weren't done yet with all the audio. We, we still had a few minutes um, of audio here. Should we hear some of that? That sounds good. Is that okay sure. with you, Aiden? You're good. Certainly. All right. Let's play a little bit more. So both towers are now. Okay, I got an aircraft coming out east of the White House. Hello? Crystal City, just north of Crystal City. Just to the north of your town. Yeah, stop all the parkers. Pentagon just got hit. Don't throw me in that. God damn it, I can't even protect my NCA. There's that ping again. United 93, that traffic three is 1 o'clock, 12 miles eastbound 370. Negative contact, we're looking, United 93. United 93, Cleveland, if you hear the center right then. I got that piece of dark. Keep remaining to the You have a ball, boys. Yeah, you, uh, that part of the audio there, that was like a, one of the hijackers, allegedly. Of 93. Right. Flight 93. Mm-hmm. Ziadra. What, what do you make of that, Dan? Well, I really don't know. I mean, that it sounds like a hijacking was taking place. Now you got to ask, were they on board or not? We don't know for sure. Yeah, we don't know exactly. Whose name, who, whose name showed up in the manifest? They have no films of any of them getting on board the aircraft. But there are some people who believe there were, in fact, hijackers on board the aircraft. Right. And perhaps they were just patsies. Some say, some say those audio tapes were pre-recorded. I've heard that, too. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but that's one of the uh, theories out there that's been going on for a long time, uh, no doubt. Uh, let, let's play a bit more of this. Tuesday, 9.47 a.m. Hi, baby. I'm, baby, you have to listen to me carefully. I'm on a plane that's been hijacked. I'm on the plane. I'm calling from the plane. I want to tell you I love you. Please tell my children that I love them very much. And I'm so sorry, babe. I hope to be able to see your face again, baby. I love you. Bye. Oof. That's hard to hear. Yeah. We're five six eight six five. We have a... I believe it is a uh, Boeing 757. Can you see him up there, sir? That's concerned. Uh, it looks like he's rocking his wings. Roger. He's rocking back and forth. Number five six eight six five. I advise you stay away from that aircraft. Go north as fast as you can. United nine three. Have you got information on that yet? Yeah, he's down. He's down? Yes. When did he land? He did not land. Oh, he's down. Yeah, Bye. somewhere up northeast of Camp David. Honestly, I just want to let you know I love you, and I'm stuck in this building in New York. We lost this smoke, and we just wanted you to know that I love you. But what is? At number two, I'll tell you, right? Maybe you're stupid, but you're not. We're not ready to. 
Now, in regards to these calls, though, while these people are stuck, I believe those are legit calls, however. From the trade center, I believe. Yes, sir. Some of them. I, I think those are, we can say those probably did happen. Most likely. So much of the media narrative seems to be aimed at uh, stirring the emotion of the oh, yeah. viewer rather than try to appeal to their intellectual side. It's the kind of sensational emotionalism that you see even to this day when reporting major events. And it just seems to suspend people's ability to think critically and instead feel with emotion rather than think. Exactly. I can agree with you wholeheartedly on that. Let's play more. Yeah, that piece always got me, by the way. The man yelling while the building collapsed. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. And now people are running. Here comes that clown. No, 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 no. I'm going to die. Ma'am, 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 say your prayers. We're going to think positive because you got to help each other get off the floor. Now. Yeah, what a scene it was to see all those people jump from the building, by the way. Oh, that's horrible. That was insane. That was I, I can hardly look at the uh, photos or the film footage. Yep, that was a tough one for sure. I remember seeing some, um, I think it might have been like some sort of a Mexican news reporter, some station out there as I was uh, flipping channels. I remember they uh, actually had filmed some of the people jumping while others uh, cut right. away. Yeah, that was that was brutal. I remember I was in Newark that day and I flipped the TV on and uh, heard Giuliani talking about noises. He was out in the street and said, I heard noises uh, and I couldn't figure out what it was. And it turned out it was a sound of people hitting cars or the pavement as they they splattered all over the place. So. Damn. Yeah. There were some loud slams going on that that morning for sure. We're still talking about it 20 years later, but uh, it's the worst crime ever committed on U.S. soil that's never been investigated, and we can't ever forgive or forget who's responsible for it. I agree. Another thought that comes to mind, I believe, is I think in June of '01, the protocols for military intervention of wayward flights over the U.S. airspace, those protocols were changed by Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld which made it harder for military ground commanders to make their own decisions and required them to go further up the chain of command in order to obtain permission to do the kind of job that they were normally allowed to do. What a coincidence. A few months, I think three, before 9-11, these protocols were changed that facilitated the aircraft attacks on the Trade Center and Pentagon, as we saw. And I think it was not long after 9-11, they reset the protocols to where they had been. Well, wow. uh, how convenient. Well, you got to consider the F-16s that were launched that morning that were vectored out over the Atlantic and they were heading inbound towards Washington. Uh, what was that all about? So many unanswered questions. Yeah, there's too many. There's way too many. And of course, we do have an audio, another audio clip here to play. Of course, this drives the point home a little bit further. UAVs of various sorts have been used since August 22, 1849, when Austria launched 200 pilotless, bomb-filled balloons on the city of Venice. Development of UAVs continued with radio-controlled drones and pilotless torpedoes developed in World War I, the creation of the U.S. Air Force's pilotless aircraft branch in 1946, the deployment of military UAVs in the Vietnam War, 
Israel's development of the first drone with real-time surveillance capabilities in the Yom Kippur War, and U.S. use of the technology in Grenada before the birth of the modern era with the extensive deployment of pioneer drones in the first Gulf War. When it comes to the remote control of civilian aircraft, President Bush stated in late September 2001 that he would devote federal funds to developing new technologies for combating the threat of hijacking, including remote control technology. And we will look at all kinds of technologies to make sure that our airlines are safe, and for example, including technology to enable controllers to take over distressed aircrafts and land it by remote control. Interesting. He was lying. He was lying. It was developed prior to that in the 90s. If you go to uh, our website, 911pilots.org, and select remote control in the drop-down menu, we just have two short film clips there. Uh, you go back as far as over 75 years ago in 1944, uh, the U.S. military launched their Operation Aphrodite uh, in Europe. And uh, what they did was take gutted out B-24s and load it up with a highly incendiary substance called Torpex. And pilots were required to make the takeoff of the aircraft. But once they got airborne, they bailed out and the airplane was remotely controlled into targets in Europe. It was the first example of uh, of drones uh, in the U.S. military. And then if you, as a matter of fact, that's how Joe Kennedy died. He was on one of these missions and the plane blew up before he could bail out. But if you go down a little bit further, uh, there was, in 1984, there was a joint crash test experiment conducted by NASA and the FAA in a remote location where they took a Boeing 720, a four-engine big jet, and uh, no passengers or crew on board, and they remotely took it off, flew around the pattern, and auto-landed it six times before they intentionally crash-landed, and we got a real short film clip showing the crash-landing there. So you jump ahead to this uh, uninterruptible autopilot when it was developed, when it was available, and at the bottom of the page we say, you be the judge. Was it these poorly trained and inexperienced hijackers, one who could barely handle a Cessna aircraft, or was it the uninterruptible autopilot? If I recall correctly, circa 2001, there was a capability for an airline control center to remotely transmit waypoints for an autopilot-controlled flight plan that could be uploaded into a, an, an active uh, flight plan into the prior, flight management computers. Right. It was prior to, prior to 9-11, Aiden. I was flying, a tri- flying 777s, and uh, you could uplink the uh, your route. We used to have to type it in, but you could uplink the route right into the uh, flight management computer, so it wouldn't be difficult for that information to be transmitted to the computer so, and then take over the autopilot and fly the airplanes. Yeah, the technology was there circa 2001. Yeah. By the way, Dan. And especially now with the prevalence of these uh, fly-by-wire aircraft, these computerized flying machines, uh, they just seem so susceptible. Right, right. Well, they're basically flying I'll give you computers. an example. I'll give you an example. They could actually auto-take off, but they don't. But uh, <clears throat> they can... Uh, once you got your whole system programmed uh, into the flight management computers, you can take off, engage the autopilot, and engage something called uh, lateral navigation and vertical navigation. And the airplane will fly itself all the way to destination. And if you program in the approach, it'll automatically land the airplane. So it's totally automated. And people say, uh, no, this isn't possible. Well, come on, we put a man on the moon, supposedly, in 1969. They, uh, in 1962, they developed the SR-71 Blackbird. Surely the technology's out there. 
Well, no, we know it. I mean, uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I just said we know it existed. Yeah. For example, a, a typical commercial airline or airport runway is about 150 feet wide. The trade center buildings were 208 feet wide each. So the capability with the proper nav aids and flight management systems to automatically guide these aircraft into the buildings is uh, totally plausible and uh, probably likely. Gotta love GPS. Very accurate. Right, right. And how about coincidence that it was activated for civilian private use just one year before 9-11? Yeah, yeah. Many, many strange anomalies still surround 9-11. And by the way, I don't mean to completely uh, take us off course here, but I did want to get your take, uh, Dan, about... John F. Kennedy Jr., the son of uh, JFK. If you recall what happened to him back well, in 1999, yeah. right? What? Is, yeah. What's your your understanding of that plane crash? Well, I, I coincidentally I was riding and in, flying into uh, LaGuardia right when that was taking place, and the visibility due to uh, haze was so poor we couldn't fly. Uh, visual approaches. We had to be vectored around for an instrument landing. And I got to the hotel, turned on the TV and saw what had happened. And because I don't think he was all that experienced a pilot, I believed at the time that he got out. When you get out over the ocean, uh, especially in uh, smog and uh, a haze like that, it, you don't have a visible horizon. It was a smaller plane too, right? Right. It was a small plane. Yeah. So he could have got, my thoughts were he could have gotten vertigo out there without mm. any visual reference to a horizon because I don't believe he was on an instrument flight plan. And uh, that's how I thought he crashed. But I've heard a lot of theories since then that uh, it could have been taken in. But I don't believe it. I mean, it was a smaller airplane, so I don't believe it could have been an uninterruptible autopilot if that's where what you're getting at here. Yes, I, I was sort of alluding to that scenario. Yeah. And, and Aiden, what's yeah. your thoughts and, and opinions on that crash, if you have any? I, I uh, tend to agree with Dan. I mean, I, mm-hmm. to my knowledge, he wasn't instrument certified, and he had a history of being a risk taker and perhaps being uh, less than prudent. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had been in a number of accidents throughout his life, you know, recreational activity-wise. And uh, I think he had not long before his death, become injured in an amateur uh, gliding craft during a hard landing, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 He was out over the water, and when you don't have a visual horizon and you're not instrument rated, uh, you're asking for something bad to happen to you. I agree. I agree. Again, I'm not a pilot, but if you know the conditions are bad, why even take the chance, right? Right. Well... If when you were on the ground, when you're airborne uh, that afternoon or evening uh, is when the visibility was restricted. Uh, when you got on the ground, uh, it wasn't all that bad visibility wise. It was just airborne. Uh, we normally flew an approach where you come into low to LaGuardia and they'd say uh, over the statue up to Hudson, meaning go fly over the Statue of Liberty, fly up to Hudson River, and then they'll pick you up to vector you around for an approach. Well, we couldn't do that that day. I'd say over the statue up to Hudson, well, you couldn't even see the Statue of Liberty to do the visual approach. So it was just poor flight visibility. Incredible. Again, I'm not someone who is very uh, likely to fly places i i don't even like heights uh, to be honest and i've been <laughs> i've been i've been on several um, plane rides before of course uh, multiple times but uh, even in takeoff uh, i'm terrified um uh, dan and aiden <laughs> i got to be honest 
Really? I got to take it. Yeah, I got to have at least a drink uh, to board a plane. <laughs> I'm not even joking. Now, many pilots as well um, love to uh, drink a little bit too while on flight. That's what they did in Vietnam. Did they? I believe so. Many of them uh, apparently yeah. did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good times. I know John Lear was uh, doing that at one time or another. Really? Oh, that's what he yeah, told drink, me. Drinking and flying don't mix. <laughs> <laughs> well, I agree. I'm not going to say that's probably the best thing to do, but, you know, times yeah. were different back then. You know, uh, you could smoke and drink on a plane. The pilots, right. uh, the pilots right. were doing that, too. Right. Uh, surprisingly, there wasn't that many uh, crashes. Right. Amazing stuff. Um, oh, so much has changed uh, since uh, 9-11, especially trying to catch a flight on time. Well, what a headache. Besides that, besides that, we now have illegal NSA wiretaps, the Patriot Act, and that Homeland too. Security all restricting our freedom. So they use it to their advantage. And I believe they're using, I, I believe that you were talking about COVID before. Yes, COVID. I believe, I believe it's real and it's killed people, but I believe they're lying to us about the death statistics. Uh, we have no way of proving or disproving what the mainstream media is reporting. And you got to remember, this is the same mainstream media that has perpetuated the 9-11 lie for almost 20 years. So uh, I believe now that they have the entire world locked down in their houses and wearing masks outside, that if you believe in the new world order, that they're <laughs> ushering ushering in a lot of things right now. It seems like it. Before our eyes. Yeah, before it, our eyes. And there's nothing we can do to stop them. That's true. With all what's going on right now, it's, right. it's pretty insane. We have the whole pandemic. You have the riots. You have all these, uh, you have all these, um, we have all these factions are very angry with each other. We could put it that yeah. way. But again, um, with COVID-19, just, just the other day, I remember going through the news and I saw that there was an article about a spike over where you're at, uh, Captain. Right. In Pakistan. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. The Prime Minister Imran Khan decided to lift the quarantine and there was a lot of, uh, hell race about it. And, uh, there was a spike. I don't know how high it went, but uh, now they're closing up some shops again. They're still leaving some open, but they're closing up some shops. All the shops around me are closed, so we have our groceries delivered. Apparently, uh, and water delivered. We don't have drinking water over here, so oh yeah, they get five gallon jug. The water delivered in, so yeah, all that's happening. Apparently, it was like a hundred and fourteen thousand infected. That big? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, you don't want to go out there, um, Captain. No, I have. I haven't. I'm going stir crazy in the house, but I don't go out. I mean, again, I'm, I'm sure we have some sort of miscalculations with a number of things with the coronavirus. Some numbers probably aren't as accurate as others. And some saying it, some, some people are saying it's not as deadly as we believed it to be. But, uh, Aiden and Dan, uh, Captain, you know, I'm someone who doesn't even like being sick. So any kind of flu for me <laughs> is, is like, no, 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 I don't, I don't want that. No. Even yeah, if it is a simple yeah. flu, no, no thanks. I'm not into that. Right. Yeah, you got to be a fool well, to want to contract any sort of flu, in my opinion. Well, they say if you're over 60, a male, and you smoke, you stand a greater chance of uh, of getting it. And I fit all those three of those categories. <laughs> well, I'm I mean, 71, I smoke. and uh, well, well, that's uh, the thing, though. That's the thing, though, uh, Captain. Well, Captain, that's the thing. There are other reports out there that are stating those who smoke have less chance of contracting the deadlier strain of COVID-19. Oh, don't say that now. Start smoking more. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, everything's uh, everything's so uh, uncertain, though. There's so many studies out there 
saying it's good, it's bad, don't wear a mask, do wear a mask, don't touch yeah. this, don't touch that. The the yeah. heat is going to get rid of the virus. I mean, we, we've heard all sorts of things from the who, from the scientists out there, the experts. Right. And right. it's hard to, you know, it's hard to really trust who to believe. Right. And I'm sure Aiden feels the same way, right, Aiden? Oh, sure. So much of what seems to be happening is seems to be very politicized. Uh, you know, Dr. Fauci and his um, yeah. admiration for Hillary Clinton and his uh, close relationship with healthcare hobbyist Bill Gates, <laughs> right. who's often regarded as some type of expert in the healthcare field, and his alleged ownership of a variant of the COVID. Uh, virus by a uh, division of his uh, foundation, the Perbright uh, uh, group or something to that effect its name is. And of course, another division of his foundation, Wargaming, what is unfolding now as recently as uh, last fall. What a coincidence. Uh, and him supposedly, uh, allegedly being very invested in the uh, reported cure via vaccinations that may be on the way. Uh, just is very he's very conveniently like Turner Construction with 9-11 at the beginning, middle and end phases of uh, crises that is you know currently unfolding. That's right. Now we now we praise him, Mr. Sure. Mr. Bill Gates. Well, some some people do. That's right. He's what's, his like- expertise? what's his expertise? He's a college dropout. He's a he's a, a tech person. That's right. But the media regard him as some sort of medical expert and he's not. He's the Messiah to, to some of the media out there. Let's play a little clip here of What else are Bill we Gates. not listening to that we need to take action on now? Well, the the idea of a, a bioterrorist attack is kind of the nightmare scenario because they're a pathogen with a high death rate would be picked. Now, the good news is, okay. not trying to depress you, it's tough enough Too late. right now, Too that late. most of the work we're going to do to be ready for pandemic two, I, I call this pandemic one, most of the work we'll do to be ready for that are all... So that should be your hand right there. He said pandemic two. Uh, you know, right. he was kind of in the know back... Back uh, years ago, he was talking about a pandemic coming. So Bill Gates knew a few things, obviously. So he's already talking about pandemic two right here in this clip. And of course, we are already talking about the second wave coming. Right. His idea of helping the world is uh, poking people with needles. If he was really concerned about helping the poor, he would address uh, economic reforms that would lift millions out of poverty that they currently experience. But he believes somehow that sticking people with with potions is the answer to everyone's uh, problems. Insane. But let's finish up that clip. Also, the things we need to do uh, to minimize the threat of of bioterrorism. So, yeah, there we go. That's uh, Bill Gates for you, boys and girls. And yeah, will you trust Bill Gates when he rolls out that um, vaccine? That's the question, Aiden and, and Dan. Well, I regard philanthropy as the practice of super wealthy of tampering with the world with their fortunes. Well, money talks and it runs the government and he's worth, what, 70 billion. So uh, he has a voice. So does George Soros. So he who has the most money wins. That's how it goes. Those who have the most money usually is the way it's played out, especially if you go against them in court. That's where they drain your resources. Right, Aiden? Uh, Don't get me started on the court system. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, gentlemen, we are coming to a close here. Uh, Aiden, is there anything else you'd like to add and uh, talk about here with 
our friend Captain Dan Hanley before we let him go and close shop. And of course, Dan, I will give you an opportunity uh, to say a few words before you part ways. Um, Aiden, go ahead. Yeah, I think uh, we covered everything. Uh, as we were mentioning with respect to the automated control of the 9-11 flights, the infrastructure is was there, is there. And the official story, on the other hand, the corroborating evidence for the allegation is not there. It's simply a, merely an allegation if you cut through all the BS, so to speak. Right. That's why we're focusing on the pilot. Right. And, and Captain, before we cut you loose, any final words in closing, anything you'd like to add? Um, of course, I would also want to throw this question at you before we wrap up with you, Captain. After all okay. the years of your experience in flying and, of course, following along the official and unofficial narrative of 9-11, what has been the most compelling for you aside from the difficulty it would be for these alleged hijackers to have um, flown these planes into the World Trade Center. What exactly was it for you? Well, when you look at the fact that the World Trade Center buildings were was comprised of steel and concrete, and you see how it was justified. I mean, just from a collapse of a building, all this steel and, and iron was justified as it came down, and it went all the way down to the surface that way. Uh, causes me to suspect just outside what I talk about, the pilots being inexperienced. Uh, that raised my eyebrows, too. Right, right. Definitely. Always the red flag there, that simple fact. Uh, Captain, of course, I want to thank you tremendously for being a part of the program yet again. Uh, we we got to do it again, uh, Dan. Any Anytime, uh, Michael. No problem. Anytime. I, I want to thank you for having me on the program, too. It was you, enjoyable, and it was nice meeting you, Aidman. Likewise, even though we're miles away. <laughs> Likewise, it's been a pleasure talking to you both. Yes, sir. Dan, take care. But before we go, um, Dan, plug your website one more time. Okay, it's 911pilot.org. And I want to point out, if you go to the that page, uh, at the very top of the page, there's uh, five different items. And one of them is join us. And that isn't just for pilots. We get daily, daily, we get people joining us from the general public uh, with comments. You can make comments at a box. And we made the form super simple to fill out. There's only five, five blocks of information, your first name, last name, email address, your country, your uh, uh, telephone number, that's six, six item, and your comment section down there. So we welcome you to join. And when you do, what that does is put you on our mailing list so we can keep you apprised with updates uh, via email of what we're doing and where we're headed. Very nice, Dan. Always a pleasure and honor to talk to you. We'll do it again uh, here very soon, Dan. Take care. Very good, Michael. Thank you again. And see you. Aiden. Nice talking with you. Likewise. You too, Dan. Take care. Mahalo. Bye-bye. And uh, there he goes, boys and girls, Doctor, Doctor Captain Dan Hanley. And uh, yes, not sure why I called him doctor there for a moment, uh, Aiden. That happens. The, uh, he kind of sounds like a, a doctor, if you think about it, that name. Uh, Dan Hanley sounds like a doctor's name. The uh, fun and games of live broadcasts. That's right. I know. I wasn't expecting that at all, uh, uh, Aiden. I guess after two hours, you might grow fatigued. It happens. It does. It does. And Aiden, again. Perhaps, uh, mm -hmm. Oh, continue. Please no, no, me. go ahead. Go ahead. Jump in there. I guess uh, you had wanted to address the Las Vegas situation. Oh, that's right. That's right. Before we before we cut off, but let's let's I talk about that for a moment. If, 
we have time for that. It's a bit involved, but yeah, it's uh, it's kind of long. But let's um let's sort of uh, touch the surface here. Then we could um have a part two of this conversation, Aiden. Sure. Uh, what specifically were you interested in addressing? Well, again, I sent you information, right. and I didn't know what aspect you might want to start with. Well, what exactly was it that? Uh, even got you interested in the shooting uh, that when it first went down, Aiden, what got your suspicion on a rise there? I had been employed as a security professional with a sister property of Mandalay Bay on the night of the shooting. I had just returned from my break, and minutes later, the shooting unfolded, and hundreds of people poured onto our property while trying to escape the scene. And our radio channel became clogged with traffic. Hmm. And uh, I, for another five or ten minutes, continued to listen and began to think that this may be the so-called big one that we had been warned about for years regarding the city and terrorism. And thinking I didn't want to be stuck in the building, had that been the case, I decided to get downstairs near an exit in order for my, uh, in order to be able to escape if it became necessary. And then having entered into an outdoor breezeway, within a minute, dozens of people poured out of our casino and were telling me as they were running toward me to run, run, run. There's an active shooter inside the casino. And I decided to try to lead these people away from or rather towards safety, given my familiarity with the property. And as about 25 of us are walking down Tropicana Boulevard on the sidewalk, our surveillance operator at the time advised us that there was an active shooter descending the outdoor escalator at the corner of Las Vegas, Vegas Boulevard and Tropicana Avenue. At that point in time, I thought I was surrounded by at least two active shooters and thought I may not make it through the night. Wow. However, eventually I decided to turn around, lead these people upstairs into the building through a stairway out the back and walking in a direction of safety away from everything that was unfolding. And I recalled that during the transmission reporting the active shooter at the outdoor escalator, there was a description of appearance and clothing, an actor dressed in all black, possibly Hispanic or Middle Eastern. And at the back of the building, when I finally parted company with these people I had led away from the front, I found myself alone in the back of the building on a small access road open to the public, but only generally used by employees and people doing business with the hotel. And there was a single car coming toward me on this roadway from the direction of Las Vegas Boulevard and Oddly enough, the reported location of this alleged active shooter. And as this car neared my location, it did a U-turn in the middle of the street, stopped, and a hand reached out of the window and placed a siren onto the top of the car. Wow. At that point, I realized this is probably an unmarked Metropolitan Police Department vehicle. And almost parallel to the car, as I'm standing there on the sidewalk in the relative darkness, come running these two subjects – Dressed identically in black, black pants, black shoes, black T-shirts, black ball caps on backwards, and both carrying black backpacks on their shoulders. And I thought for a moment that this uh, law enforcement officer may get out of the vehicle and intervene and stop these subjects. And he never did. It was almost in hindsight as if he were escorting them through the property and I did some later research and found that there were a number of reports of similarly dressed uh, possible active shooters uh, throughout the city dressed as exactly as these subjects were that I observed. And what a coincidence. I, I, I perhaps saw something I wasn't supposed to see. 
That's interesting. Of course, we are referring to the night of October 1st, 2017, where the, um, what was it, the Route 91 Harvest? Uh, mm-hmm. Route 91 Harvest Festival, the concert. Right, right there on the Las Vegas Strip. Open venue across the street from the Mandalay Bay. And that's where yeah. the alleged shooter was? Yes, and moreover, given that they were a sister property of the company I worked at for the, worked for at that time, there was a uniformity throughout the corporation. What takes place on one property takes place on all of them. And at our property, we had what was known as a time locks door lock system, electronic locks that record all the activity into a centralized uh, a terminal, let's say. And this activity could include key usage, uh, doorknob usage inside and outside. All such activities recorded and, and time stamped. And were this apparently this was the case as well at Mandalay. They had such technology in use as we did. And eventually the police report contained the door lock activity for the rooms that were occupied by the alleged shooter. And I decided to review the information given my familiarity with that type of information in my own workplace. And what you find is if you follow the sequence of events, you get to a point where Someone is in the hallway outside the shooter's room 20 minutes before the shooting with the room holder's key, the accused. And apparently someone else had to be inside his room as well at the same time because the door is open from the inside when you find through following the sequence of events that somebody was also in the hallway with his key at the same time. Yet authorities say he acted alone, the accused. Right. And I generated a uh, an assessment. It's available online. I did send you a copy of it. Yes, you did. Mm-hmm. I tried to report this information to all authorities I could possibly think of, county commissioners, local police, uh, state attorney generals, local congresspersons, state senators, FBI. I have received no replies. I shared this information with other smart people, and they agree that if you follow the sequence of events at the two doors that were of the rooms occupied by the shooter, you find that eventually – there had to be two people on scene. That's right. And we still haven't got any footage as far as I am concerned uh, about the shooting from uh, law enforcement, correct? Have they released any footage of uh, Stephen Paddock? Uh, some of the footage of him traveling through the casino. However, up in the hallways of the hotel itself, the rooms are not under camera surveillance. I see. So basically all you have in the way of tangible information is the door lock activity. And also as well, and I'm surprised they didn't release it, uh, at Mandalay, in addition to the property I worked at, the, the room thermostats contain motion sensors that allow the time locks administrator to know if the room is occupied by a guest based on the recorded movement of the guest if they're inside the room by this thermostat. Ooh. And I did a FOIA request for this information with the FBI and their stonewalling. I asked for all of the videos that they collected during their investigation as well in this request. And interestingly enough as well, what is also under their control are the FAA flight radar information for the local airport across the street from the Mandalay Bay. I had heard allegations online that there was unusual helicopter traffic as before, during, and after the shooting itself, and just being curious and being a potential skeptic of what I was hearing, I decided, well, let's just cut to the chase and go right to the aircraft, or rather the radar data. However, the FBI seized that information, according to the FAA, from the FAA. 
and it's now under their control and I'm still awaiting receipt of it and not getting any response for it. And therefore, with the help of an attorney who has volunteered his services, we're probably going to wind up in litigation for these uh, information records. Unbelievable. Yeah. Wow. Of course, uh, 58 people believe were killed that day or that night, rather. Yeah. Interestingly, interestingly enough, through my own research, I also found that the doctor, the personal physician for the accused shooter was also a an employee for the Department of Homeland Security. Another coincidence. Yes, he was a member of a local disaster response unit that was a division of the Department of Homeland Security, which led me to ask myself, you know, how many people in the state of Nevada have a doctor who works for the Department of Homeland Security? Not uh, many. I was going to say not many, <laughs> yeah. And what a coincidence that the accused shooter of one of the worst mass shootings, the worst in U.S. history, just happened to have a doctor that did so and who worked for a professional organization that responded to the kind of disasters that shooting aftermath turned out to be. And by the way, Aiden, when this went down, how scared were you? I thought I was going to die. I would have to imagine, yeah. When I heard the report of the second gunman allegedly on the outdoor escalator heading potentially in my direction. As I'm leaving the scene of what was another reported active shooter, I thought I may not be able to escape. And for a moment, I thought this could be the end. Wild stuff there. I mean, it was a, it was, Mm -hmm. it was a very interesting evening to say the least. And certainly not to make light of it. I recall later that evening being stopped by a female who was two hours later, still in a state of shock, handing me a cell phone and telling me of the story of her and another woman that were running from the shooting at the concert venue. And she told me that this woman fell to the ground after being hit. And in a state of shock, the woman I was speaking to advised that she'd simply, in a state of shock, just picked up the woman's phone and continued to run with it. What do you make of those who say these were crisis actors and no one actually died? Oh, no. I'm sure you heard that. Uh, yeah, I, I don't find that plausible. I was there. I spoke to dozens of people who told me they heard hundreds of shots. Uh, it doesn't seem plausible to me. And I'm not discounting the belief that there are such things as false flag events and sure, so on. Sure. And so forth. But this happened, in my opinion. I mean, I, the evidence is overwhelming. As to what and who may have been behind it and for what reason, I don't think we know. I don't think... I think it's entirely possible this subject did not act alone. And I find, as I mentioned, through examination of the door lock activity, that indeed there was a second subject on scene. The uh, conclusion is inescapable if you examine the evidence I present in the information that I online that I sent you. Right. And, uh, well, I wish we could go further into this, Aiden, but we are coming to a close here. But again, that, okay, that leaves uh, in a future time. Oh, yeah. In the very near future, Aiden, I, I definitely want to continue this discussion. And I don't mean uh, us doing this like next month. I mean, doing this uh, rather soon again. Certainly. Oh, yeah. I think there's plenty to discuss, especially on this topic. Uh, we haven't really even uh, scratched the surface here yet. We, we definitely have to dig a little bit further here on that topic. I think it deserves some airtime. It does, yeah, because it seems to have been swept under the rug. They have their official story, Mm -hmm. and they're alleging case closed, and I say not so fast. 
I'm with you on that one, uh, 100% there, Aiden. And of course, my goodness, I hate to do this. I feel like I could talk to you easily for another hour just alone, but we Certainly. are, yes, sir. We are against the uh, time here. And Aiden, again, I do want to thank you tremendously for being a part of the program. It's been, it's been incredible uh, to have you here and to talk to you. And of course, we had Captain Dan join in. That was fun. It's been a pretty good night here, Dan. I, I've hope I'm Dan, uh, Aiden. I, I hope you had fun. I did. It was very interesting. And I thank you for having me and allowing me to speak of the things I did. No doubt. And before I cut you loose, uh, any final words in closing, uh, anything you'd like to perhaps even plug yourself or just say the floor is yours. Go ahead, Aiden. Oh, certainly. Thank you. Uh, you could type up my name, Aiden Monahan, nine eleven, and find a various research that I've conducted over the years regarding the 9-11 event, the technology that enables and facilitates automatic control of the flights that we saw that day very easily and the coincidental suspect timing of the availability of the technology and the apparent evidence of its use of its usage and so on. And additionally, the Las Vegas evidence I spoke of, it's also available online. Uh, just look up door lock interrogation information into a Google search and it should come up. Very nice. Once again, thank you so much for being here, Aiden. I will contact you again very soon. And I hope I didn't hang up on you there, Aiden. I apologize if I did. And uh, yeah, I might have uh, hung up on there. Let's let's um, be polite and, and say goodnight here to Aiden and I, again, thank you so much for being a part of the program, Aiden. We will do this again. Take care. And there he goes, boys and girls. Aiden Monahan, great, great guest. And of course, I want to thank all of you out there for being a part of the program as well. Those in the chat room. And of course, those who will listen to the podcast rendition of this program. And if you want exclusive content, go to patreon.com forward slash Michael Deacon. And that is where you'll find the bonus content, and of course, if you don't want to go to Patreon, there is something called PayPal. You can find that over at michaeldeacon.com. Any donation I will personally send you, most, if not all, of the episodes from the Patreon series. And that's where you'll find me one-on-one -on -one with various guests out there. Once again, anything does help to keep the ball rolling here. And I definitely appreciate all of you out there for listening. Always fun. Please subscribe to the YouTube channel and don't forget to take us on the road. Subscribe to the podcast rendition of the program on iTunes, Stitcher, CastBox, and Spotify. All the international listeners out there, thank you for your support. Canada, Germany, the UK, Australia, Norway, Brazil, all very nice people. It's been a top talent show yet again. And what does the future have in store for us? I don't know. The year 2020 has been a bit of a roller coaster ride, to say the very least. Now, like I usually say every night before I close up here, there's nothing more frightening than reality. And I certainly hope you well, wherever you are, on this pale blue dot. And with that said, the world is a mysterious place, and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, mahalo 